First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. to another exciting episode of Junk Food Cinema brought to you by filmschoolrejects.com. Dot com. Dot com. Dot Brody. I am your host, Brian Salisbury, joined, as per usual, by my friend and co-host, a novelist, a screenwriter, a lieutenant of Megaforce, uh, one of the best greasemen in the industry, Mr. C. Robert Cargo. Hi. How's it going? It's it's We're fucking right chugging on through heist month, man. Oh, heist month, man. I love me some heist movies, and man, do I fucking love this heist movie. This is great. I am so excited to talk about this. But first, I need to talk about our back catalog, which is available on iTunes as well as on Blog Talk Radio. You can also find us on Twitter at Junk Food Cinema and like the podcast on Facebook, facebook.com slash Junk Food Cinema. If you really like the show, if you think the show is just the greatest thing since since rig slot machines you can go to patreon.com slash junk food cinema and for as little as a dollar an episode you will get access to bonus content that no one else gets to hear including this month our our uh, our sub episode about oceans 12 so we have covered the entire gamut of oceans movies now and i am well until of course we do our a la mode for oceans 8 which i hope we do I absolutely think we have to. So patreon.com slash junk food cinema. But by the way, if you happen to be a patron of a little show called 80s All Over, which if you've been listening to us for any length of time, you know we absolutely love, you can hear our ugly voices uh, combining with those of Scott Weinberg and Drew McWeeny. And then you can play the game Cargill or Weinberg. Cargill or Weinberg. It's a game nobody wins. I think that this podcast has devolved into something resembling a, not drunken, tipsy frat house party. You don't know terror until you propose Geronimo as a baby. <laughs> Next year, according to the Italians, is one of the many years that the apocalypse has happened. What Halloween candy goes with Sophie's choice? It's either a game of Warhammer or somebody's getting sacrificed to something. Guys, it's, it's junk food all over. Uh, but we get to talk about some of our favorite 80s movies, some of our favorite weird 80s subgenres, and I think that as of this posting, that episode is available, so definitely encourage you to become a patron of 80s All Over and get access to that episode, and by the way... And check out their amazing bonus content. For sure, and by the way, we will have Scott and Drew on a bonus episode for you guys as well uh, coming up here very soon, so stay tuned for that. And we have reached it, the end of the Oceans trilogy, as we... Delve into Heist Month again with Oceans 13. 
Where's the partner's desk going to be? Oh, no partner's desk. You're out. What are you going to do, throw me off the roof? No, I don't want to. He hurt Ruben. I know what that makes me want to do. I don't care if it gets messy. I'll drive you, get him leaving his barber. Then I'll inject him, and I'll find a spot to get rid of the body. All valid ideas. Great initiative. But. But. To reverse big store. Doesn't matter if we win, as long as the casino loses. Which means that we have to rig craps, blackjack, slots, and roulette. All in our favor. <laughs> Can't be done. We don't have the manpower. Or the time. Or a way in. I know people who really know how to hurt. Well, I know all the guys that you'd hire to come after me. They like me better than you. You okay? Yeah, no, I just bit into a pepper. Is that? Hmm? Are you? Are you watching Oprah? I I talked a little bit about this on our episode about Ocean's 12 for patrons, which uh, should be posting very soon, but... I was never the biggest fan of Ocean's 12. Like, I, it was such a disappointment after how much I loved Ocean's 11. The look on your face when I pitched we do three weeks of the Ocean's movies, when I said, you like, wait, you you mean you want to do 12? Like, <laughs> y- you not only was it like the disapproving dad look, like you were so disappointed in me, but you also were like, and you you grit your teeth when you said, you're like, I don't like that movie. <laughs> so when you came back and you're like, hey, uh, uh, okay, it's not as bad as I thought it was. It's It's funny. I've kind of half come around on it. There's still things I really don't like about it, but I only say that because that experience I had with Ocean's 12 in theaters made Ocean's 13 such a giant fucking cinematic hug for me because it felt like a return to form. It was not only a return to form, but it also pays off having watched 12. Like, hey, we're going to have a couple really good jokes in here, by the way, that you need to see 12 for. So so you did not waste your time, and you do know who Tallur is, and Tallur is kind of amazing. And Tallur is the... Who knew that Vince, Vincent Cassell would be the thing that... that Binds this entire universe together. I know. It's incredible. Uh, and his scene in 12 was always, even when I didn't like the movie, was always my favorite part of that movie. And then it it ends up setting up what I think is one of the better... It sets up a lot of things in here, and we'll get into a lot of that. But it sets up one of the better elements of this movie that I just... That makes me... This movie's... This movie is... if. Ocean's Eleven is a high five. This movie is a hug. It's such a hug. It's like, okay, look, we love these characters. We're going to give them all arcs. We're going to wrap them up. We're going to show you that we've actually been doing stuff with them the whole time. They have evolved, but they are still the characters that you love. Um, we're going to give you some very sweet moments with uh, with most of them, if not all of them. They're all going to uh, uh, have something to do. And it just is, it's just nice. Yeah. It's just pleasant. It's just sweet. It is the sweetest of the films. It, it really is. Because the entire plot of this movie is that Ruben, who we've talked about this in our Ocean's Eleven episode, also has a pretty incredible arc throughout these movies. In this movie, he has been double-crossed by a casino magnate, play, or Willie Bank, played by Al Pacino. The only Titan... 
of old school Hollywood that hadn't been in this franchise yet. Like, yeah, you right. know, we fucking had Bruce Willis show up. You know, we've got all these actors turning up. So it's about time we bring in Pacino. Pacino. Sans Uwas. Yeah, this is. There's this is, no Uwa. This is a very, di- like, Pacino in this movie, it was so refreshing because there came to be a type of Pacino, even outside of the Uwas, like just a very specific type of Pacino we would see in movies after Scent of a Woman. And this was so refreshing that it was it was just a very different, very sort of, you know, he has a couple of moments where he's yelling, but for the most part, he is very intimidating and he doesn't have to yell. Like there's even a scene, a really great scene in this movie where we see sort I don't know what you would describe it, like a flashback and a side kind of thing where they're describing how Bank takes every detail of his casino seriously. And he's talking, but there's no audio coming from him. And then he screams and shoves a vase, but they pause it. So the most screaming he does in this movie is actually in a sequence where we don't hear him screaming. It's almost a deliberate thing by Soderbergh. Like, if you think all my Pacino is going to do in this movie is scream... You clearly don't know my ability to get new and interesting things out of actors. I have a very interesting theory about Pacino in this movie. Oh, yes, please. I honestly think he's playing 2000-era Donald Trump. Oh. If you you take a look at all he cares about, what he does, and who he is, he is very much playing what Donald Trump was presenting himself as. You know, we didn't get a chance to talk about this in our Ocean's Eleven episode, but there is one very, like, nails on a chalkboard moment in the original Ocean's Eleven. It's not their fault, but where Danny's calling his parole officer, and in the background, clear as day, is the fucking Trump Hotel with the big goddamn Trump letters, and it's just like, oh, that's unfortunate. I think it's funny, because that (laughs) that casino fucking tanked oh you don't wait a trump industry tanked the deuce you say and he got he had all sorts of legal troubles all of which he lost like that again the deuce you say the deuce you say (laughs) but i honestly feel like this is like he is kind of playing on the you know trump before he lost his mind he he was still you know kind of a he was still apparently a pathological liar and still apparently and definitely screwing over business partners left but that's just it that's what i think he's doing yeah i think this is and a lot of the techniques he uses uh, are exactly what donald trump would do like there's a whole section where one of the hard parts about breaking into this building revolves around the fact that he wanted to get full credit for designing the building. So he literally fired every architect and business partner along the way so that finally by the end, the final plans were his so he could say he designed the building, even though he literally had all these other people involved. Yeah. And that is something that Trump was famous for during during his that's really interesting so and when i realized that along with the five diamonds and constantly bragging about and the fact that he walks up to this stranger like this woman in his hotel and brags about yeah yeah he's bragging to one of the maids about it and the way he fires the pool guy yeah like where where it's just like don't worry it's not your fault we should have fired you a week ago yeah like when you know it's or, or how about the fact that a major plot point of this movie is that the only way to bring down his security system is to have him walk in there with a magnetron, and the only way to get him to take a magnetron is it's a phone someone told him he couldn't have. Yeah. Oh, you couldn't get this phone, huh? Yeah. Oh, man. that you, What you're saying makes so much sense. When you think about the fact that he built a casino that's just a tower with his own name on it, 
Yeah, no, I'm starting to really line up with this theory. By the way, by the way, for years after this movie came out, bear in mind, I have never been to Las Vegas. For years after this movie came out, I believed that building was actually there. That is one of the greatest pieces of digital trickery I have ever seen. Oh, you thought that was a real building? I thought it was a real building in Las Vegas. I had no idea it was digitally constructed because one, I've never been to Vegas, and two, that thing looks like it's really there. Like there's no there's no seam on it at all. And I'm just like, oh, that must be a casino in Vegas I'm just not aware of. So kudos to the the second unit of the digital effects team on this movie because you fooled me for years. Yeah. So congrats. But so the plot here revolves around Ruben getting in uh in in bed in business with uh, Willie Bank. The two of them are going to open a casino called the Midas, but wouldn't you know it at the 11th hour? Uh, Bank Gino screws him over. Bank screws him over, and it 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 ruins Ruben, not financially, but just on a personal level to the point that he has a heart attack. Well, because to sum up what Ruben's arc has been is when Ruben is approached, he's a legend. He's, he's a bank man who gets involved in this to get revenge against... Uh, uh, Terry Benedict. Benedict yeah. That's why he gets brought in. It's revenge for him getting screwed over and he joins the team. But over the course of working with the team, he feels young again. He's not this guy who's been put out to pasture like everyone else thinks he's been put out to pasture that Ruben is done. His day is done. And um, and he's like, no, no, I'm still young and spry. I'm still hanging out with Danny Ocean and fucking Rusty, man. I'm fucking hip. I can do this. I'm going to start up my own new hotel. I'm back in the game. And he gets fucked. And he gets fucked because he trusts the wrong person, which is exactly what Ruben never should have done. And Ruben's ego got the best of him. And he got screwed over. He got taken. And then everyone else inverts it. Instead of using... Ruben's money to get revenge on, uh, you know, on Terry Benedict and and pull a heist on Terry Benedict. They're spending all their money to get revenge for Ruben having yeah. gotten screwed up. Yeah, I just and that's my favorite element of this movie is the the you know somebody did something to one of ours and in Danny Ocean has the great line in the movie where he's like, you know, Bank did this to Ruben. I know how that makes me feel. I know what that makes me want to do. And I love that scene where they're just kind of panning around all the faces around Ruben's bed and you hear the guys talking and they start planning an assassination. They're like, I'll drive the car. I'll inject him. I'll find a hole. And you just you realize how quickly these guys who have just been like, you know, quirky thieves up to this point when somebody does something like this to one of theirs, they're ready to kill. They're like all four. And, and well, but. But the rules, the rules are such that we give we give Billy or I'm sorry, we give Willie a Billy Martin. And we OK, so this is something we set up in Ocean's Eleven. But the language of these movies, of the verbiage that con artists and thieves use in these movies and how it's all referential is really fascinating in this movie because you can start to if you understand a couple of the references, you can start to pick it apart and understand that it all really does mean something. And my favorite is. The Billy Martin. Billy Martin was a coach for the Yankees who multiple times was fired. Multiple times was fired by George Steinbrenner, but kept being invited back. He kept being given multiple chances. So when the guys say we give him a Billy Martin, it means we just give him another chance. We give him a second chance to make it right. Yeah. So that like that. I remember I. You offered me a Billy Martin. I'm going to pass. And that's the thing is. Willie is not like Terry Benedict. Willie knows the fucking rules of thieves and con artists. So when 
Clooney approaches him, he's like, oh, it's a Billy Martin. I pass. But it's like he knows what the fuck a Billy Martin is. Well, he knows that he knows the rules, but he doesn't respect the rules. Yeah. And that's the whole big and the whole big thing. And my favorite element of this movie is, you know, they set up from the beginning. You shook Sinatra's hand. Yes. There was, you know, there was a code that the guys who shook Sinatra's hand didn't fucking shank each other. That's how this town works. It's how we operate. And when you throw those rules out, we get to throw the rules out on you. And hey, but and and like, I love this whole thing of I know some very serious people. And uh, but then at the same time, we keep getting told that Danny Ocean is I'm told you're a very serious person by very serious people. And then at the end, Danny, uh, uh, Danny just tells him he's like, uh, I know some very serious people that I'm going to send after you. Yeah, I know all the guys you sent after me and they like me more than you. Yeah. Like you don't you don't understand what you did. Like literally you screwed over somebody who was everybody's uncle in this town. I'm glad you, you mentioned. We are gonna. We have fucked you because of. Yeah, it. and I, I like that you mentioned that line because there's a running theme in this movie that made my little geek heart so happy. Because you'll notice Andy Garcia is the villain in the first one. Yep. Al Pacino's the villain in this one. They oh, there's a Godfather connection there. They were both in Godfather three. Um, Steven Soderbergh is well fucking aware of that because oh, yes. throughout this movie he is just cribbing lines from the godfather and that's actually one of them is you know i'm told by very serious people that you're a serious guy that's one of the multiple lines from the godfather that they lift wholesale the next one also comes in that scene where danny says to willie what i want what's most important to me which is exactly what al pacino says to solozzo in the fucking restaurant it's like oh my god i'm just like i it was enough for me like as a movie geek i wanted to just start jerking off i'm like this this is everything i've ever wanted in a movie you know oh my god it was Uh, (laughs) the scent of a fat man yes true story uh so but my favorite one my favorite reference to the godfather is when ruben wakes up and he says, I hear cars coming, people talking, Linus crying. <laughs> Why don't you tell me what everyone else already seems to know? Which is just like a slightly altered version of what Don Corleone says when he wakes up. But just that Linus is the one that's crying mm. is fucking hilarious. Um, we need to talk about the additions to the team in this movie. And specifically the addition of Eddie Izzard to the actual heist because he does show up in 12. Yes. And this I, movie, this movie, the, the thing about this series is it keep, it's kind the only other series I can really compare it to is the lethal weapon series. Yes. Where oh, ev- that's good. Every instance we get new characters and we love the characters so much that the series stops being about what it was initially about. And it lets go of its edge and instead becomes this, film filled with characters that you love that are a family it's you know another series that would uh that would ape from it in the best way possible and we will get to next week is the fast and furious series and the reason why fast and furious is easily handily the my favorite of the fast and furious movies is because they're like well what do we do with these characters now and it's like well, what if we just made oceans 11 with these characters <laughs> and it's like yes do that, that is a movie i want to fucking see and and that is a formula that just worked and because that whole essence of family and that's what this movie does is it's like let's bring back all of the interesting characters like Bruce Willis. No, (laughs) no, no. I said the interesting characters. And then 
it leaves the the uh the women out like they're yeah. but they're still very much there and we'll get to that but yeah so eddie izzard comes back eddie izzard uh who for those of you who didn't watch 12 because maybe you had my hang-ups about it he plays roman nagel who is this this tech genius this british tech genius who they're bringing in because the whole plot and this is what i really dig about this movie is it's it is a heist movie but they're not profiting from this heist the whole point of this heist is to rig it so that everyone there on the opening night of Banks Casino wins all of his money and he loses everything. And it doesn't matter if anybody and he loses his spot on the board. Anybody in this team makes a nickel off of it. That's not what it's about. No, they spend their money. It's yeah. about fucking revenge. Yeah. And that's re it's a really interesting thing because they are plotting it out. They are going through all the intricacies just like in 11 as if they're going to profit and really they have to buy two drills for the fucking channel. Like, this has to be their most expensive fucking scheme to date. It's nuts. And so they bring in Roman because there is a security system that is incredibly complicated that it turns out was designed by Roman's arch nemesis, Greco. Greco. I love that scene where Pitt's just like, Greco? Roman? Roman? And he's it's like, obviously, you've never been to a British boarding school. Oh, God. The fucking, again. Be Again with the dialogue. The dialogue. Are you kidding but me? Who is Greco played by? Uh oh my god, who is Greco? Julian played? Sands. It is Julian Sands. Julian Sands getting like three minutes in the movie total, doing what he does best, which is just lending a ton of just serious relevance. Just like making that character believable. By the way, this movie reminded me we've got to get to Warlock eventually. Like, I don't know how we've not covered Warlock yet, but but for for geeks of a certain age, Julian Sands, uh, for a lot of people, it's like, oh, Boxing Helena. And for the rest of it, it's like, oh, yeah, that's the creepy movie that the warlock puts the girl in the box. Yeah, no, that, uh, Julian <laughs> Sands is the warlock. Like, fuck you. He is warlock. Um, I'm just glad that movie Boxing Helena is not about him actually punching a woman because I always kind of was nervous about watching it's it. It's creepier than that. Oh, OK. Well, that's, uh, that's worse. Yeah, it's it's a thing. Um, but, but going back to the dialogue for a second, and you talked about how uh, now by this point, you're right. The women, multi, uh, you know, uh, plural, because Catherine Zeta-Jones and uh, and Julia Roberts both kind of in play in 12. And in this movie, they're not in the movie, but the dialogue so smartly and so succinctly gives you the perfect reason why they're not. It's, you know, when Linus is like, where is he, Isabel and Tess? And it's not their it's fight. It's not their fight. Which is absolutely right. It is absolutely not their fight. But that is not to say this movie is bereft of a female presence because, oh my God, Ellen Barkin in this movie. Ellen Barkin bringing someone else in. And uh, oh, I love it. Uh, yeah. And Ellen Barkin is really great and then leads to one of the best bits of this movie. The best bits of the franchise. I can't believe we've gotten this far without me just saying the nose plays. The nose plays. Because the nose plays. The nose you know, the, absolutely plays. Uh, you know, everyone else doubted the Brody, but the Brody played. <laughs> it is not just a prop for prop's sake. That's okay. Oh, my God. So many amazing scenes in this movie. And one of them is when Linus is on the phone with his dad arguing about. And you don't know what it is at the time. He's just talking about the Brody. And it's not a prop for prop's sake. And you see George Clooney sitting there and just holds up his hand like he's going to take the phone. And then you hear Matt Damon say, no, I will not, not put I will not put Danny on. And then Brad Pitt does it too. Or Rusty. <laughs> like, 
So amazing. Like, and then, of oh. course, they pull it on us again because in 12, we met mom. Here we meet Linus's dad. Agent Caldwell. And it's great the way they set it up, too, because we see this uh, Nevada Gaming Commission agent that Ellen Barkin calls when she's not so sure about some of the shady characters. And you're like, oh, shit. This is going to be an antagonist. This is going to be somebody who causes problems for them. And you see him a couple more times just in the course of an investigation. And then we see him come in right as the nose is about to play. And he arrests Linus. And then you realize this is Agent. She calls him Agent Caldwell. Thank you, Agent Caldwell. And it's like, oh, shit. That's Agent Lin- Bobby Caldwell. That's Linus's dad. And it's so brilliant. And you realize that that is an arc that they've now paid off from frame one of seeing Matt Damon in Ocean's Eleven talking about his dad. I'm just I'm just happy your mother didn't have to see this. <laughs> you still want to admit that the nose played. Oh, the nose, by the way, for those of you who haven't seen this movie, I don't know why you're listening to this. If you haven't seen this movie, you should see this movie, is a fake nose that Matt Damon puts on when he's playing the role of Lenny Pepperidge, the assistant to um yin's fake billionaire character now i'm this is where we've got to rectify something here because we did not talk about yen last week how did we not do that that's because there's so so much to talk about there's so much in fact there were a couple other actors we left out that we didn't spend uh, uh spend time on um but uh uh one of the running gags that i absolutely love about this movie this series is that everyone speaks chinese yes Yes. Every time Yen speaks, everyone knows what he's saying. They never subtitle it for us. We only get context. What do you mean you're not going? We gotta go. Tai Kwan. Too fast. You did the bullet train stunt with all of Asia watching. The elevators aren't faster than that. Yeah, there's a piano. That was CGI. Wait, so those weren't your legs? Wow. Jesus. Okay then. He is. You know who he is. He's Chewbacca. <laughs> he's fucking Chewbacca. We never know what he's saying, but we always understand what he's saying because of the way everyone answers him. And that is such a great, subtle joke. And he's also treated really interestingly because he gets more and more famous and more and more talented as the series goes on. And he gets more and more bored hanging out with these guys. Yeah. Like, he's still doing this stuff. But like, there's that bit where they're like, uh, he's like, I'm not doing that. I'm just not, and they're like, well, of course you can do it. You're you're not too fat. You just did that train stunt with all of Asia watching. And it's like, oh, shit, that was CG. Dude, the fact that none of them say any of the responses back to him in Chinese means two things. They all understand Chinese, and he understands English, but they don't speak it. Yes. (laughs) Which is such a great running gag throughout this whole franchise. And it's, and, and Yen is... He always does. He's always amusing. He's got some great physical comedy. He's got some great bits. And his delivery is fantastic, even though you don't know what the fuck he's saying. It yeah. is great. Yeah. And, and I absolutely love the whole setup of he's a billionaire who owns all the air south of Beijing. And she's like, he owns the air. And he's just like, try, just try building a building more than three uh, stories, three stories in the Chongying province. And, and then see if his name comes up in your <laughs> it's search. So good. It's so ridiculous and good at the same time. And then of course the big running thread throughout this movie, besides the Godfather dialogue is the story of David Paymer as the five diamond uh, judge. Oh. oh my God. Like I, I love if this movie sets up, 
maybe better than any of the other ones, has that Edgar Wright kind of flow to it. Oh, they they tell you from the beginning. There's a great moment where they talk about how they feel so bad for this guy and what he's going to go through. It's like, don't worry, it's going to pay out. Like he gets the Susan B. Anthony at the the end of it. Susan B. Anthony at the end, which again, like I start. Maybe it was just that in the first one it was gibberish, but in this one, all the references started clicking. All the references are like the first one was deliberately gibberish, and by this time they realized, wait, we're missing a big key of comedy here. We're at people are going to watch this movie multiple times. Let's throw this stuff in and. So the Susan B. Anthony, and then somebody says, you know, I, I'd go through all that for $10 million. Uh, uh, no, I wouldn't go through all that for $10 million. I'd go through it for 11, which sounds like a reference to the first movie, but is actually what he ends up winning at the end of the movie. It's so, so like, it is so super clever in setting that up. And we watch this guy suffer so much. They're so brutal to this dude. And so David Paymer is the guy who's going to decide whether the new hotel for bank is going to win another five diamond award. And so he's in the he's in the hotel, and they start immediately pumping in like noxious smells. They put some kind of bacteria in the sheets, like and and here, and here we go again. Why are why is Saul doing this? Part two. <laughs> What's up with the dog in the in the uh, in the carrier in the carrier? What what do you mean? What's what's up with it? It's just where he's housing. Oh, okay. You're, he has yeah. suitcases. Nobody opens them. All right. Why, we always have Saul do something that is completely unnecessary for the con just to do it. And really, I almost wonder how much of that at this point is intentional versus you know because so much of this is sharp. I can't help but think that this is a small little super subtle gag of that's Saul's thing. Like it's like the nose. Saul always has to add an extra element of the con to it. You know, like you know, but it's it's not essential. Like he doesn't need to have the like. It doesn't. He the dog doesn't need to be a thing. The dog never plays into anything at all. This is true. But again, it's just setting up the persona of he convinces Bank that he's the five diamond guy. So yeah, they so he actually the has carpet. he actually has a distraction. Yes. He is he is uh the distraction in this movie. Kensington Chubb, someone else in this movie doing a fake British accent, uh, which is always fantastic. Um, but one of the things I really love about 13 when you talk about the the franchise is it looks like 11 it's got a very similar texture it's like a lot of like reds and golds it's almost like they put a modern day movie poster over the lens because it's all just like these blues and these golds. where where 12 is a radical departure and a view of a different type of crime film from that era this one kind of splits the difference and borrows visually from both but but gets back to it's almost like with 13 they're like shit we really kind of fucked up on 12 uh, people did not like it as much. So what do we do? Well, we got to go back to Vegas. We we got to do this. We got to get back to where the roots is. It's got to be kind of a revenge thing in this way. Um, and uh, shit, let's let's visually use the same color palette. Let's get Terry Benedict involved in the grift. That might be my favorite thing about the changes in thirteen is. They've gone through a whole fucking story arc with with Terry Benedict. Yes, and finally he becomes part of the team, a reluctant part of the team, and one that they definitely don't trust because and that's oh, and he tries to and that's the beauty is Terry Benedict then screws them over, but he they screw him over in in exchange, and then he makes the most of it, which is 
one of the greatest parts of this movie is like they're like yeah we gave all all your money to charity kind of like as a fuck you because fuck you you broke the deal so we're breaking the deal and then they're just sitting there in the airport watching terry benedict on fucking oprah just making them eat shit because now he's one of oprah's angels yeah she's like why what made you do it he goes well just uh saying all the work that you do and you set such a great example and you know it's it's really about the kids it's just like you fucking shithead (laughs) and the the, 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 the looks on their face are like fuck yeah (laughs) like he's like this motherfucker can spin straw into fucking gold like every goddamn time we that's another Edgar Wright moment in this movie because there's a great moment where Rusty comes into Danny's suite and he's like, "Is that? Are you? Are you watching Oprah?" Well, yeah, but for it, it, yeah, he it's like you're crying. Like, he's crying and he's watching Oprah as they're like giving, and it's Rusty's like jibing him about it at first, but then Rusty and you see Rusty's face and you're like, he's about to start crying too. And here's one of the things I love about Thirteen and what it does for the entire series. It is the ultimate growth of uh, Rusty and Danny because Rusty and Danny start in Ocean's Eleven busting each other's balls. And then every every single time they're together in Ocean's Eleven, they're busting each other's balls. It's back and forth. It's alpha dominance. Ted Nugent called. He wants his shirt back. back. I hope you're the groom. You know? <laughs> uh, and, and we see why Danny loves uh, 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 Danny loves Rusty. Tess. Oh, yeah. Um, in the first one, because, you know, uh, we need to get Rusty a girl. And then even then, Rusty's like, there's a woman's prison up the road. But here, every single scene they're together, they're talking about their relationships. Yeah. It's they're not busting each other's balls. They're they have become such close friends and they have developed as, as guys and they are in these relationships. And Rusty's talking to him because he needs help understanding how to do this because he doesn't know how to do this. And they're always talking about feelings. They're always talking about what it's like to be married. They're always talking about what they're not understanding. They have reached a point of friendship where it's not finishing each other's sentences. It's just the need for the rest of the sentences isn't there. There's a great moment where Rusty says, relationships can be, and Danny goes, sure. But they're also, that's right. That's right. And it's like, that's it. That's the yeah. entire conversation. And then they get to this Oprah scene. And he's like, you watching Oprah with a bottle of wine? <laughs> and then they just sit there and they and we're watching Oprah for like a full minute and and like wait is she building them a new hat yeah <laughs> and you see Rusty start to tear up yeah like and it's and you get that these guys these guys have these huge hearts which is also what this film is about this entire film is about these guys doing this because they love uh they love Ruben. Yeah. And then there's that great moment where they're talking about their relationships and they go to the fountain and they start talking about what Vegas used to be. Yeah. And they're reminiscing about what Vegas used to be. And while talking about what Vegas used to be, they're talking about the first time they met Ruben. Yeah. And we find out that Danny uh, met him. uh, Well, no, it was Rusty met him at a poker game. Yeah. And uh, took, took him out to breakfast. Took him out to breakfast after oh, he, he was so getting good. fleeced by a, by uh, a cheater. Um, it was, and you find out that these guys have this long history with Ruben, and Ruben is kind of everyone's uncle in Vegas. Like he's that guy that has come through for everybody at some point, which is why everyone loves him, and which is why everyone shows up. And this the the emotional growth of Rusty and. Danny is really fucking touching and yeah. really sweet. Um, 
And I, I fucking love the shit out of it, how that joke plays and how sweet that joke is. 100%. And, and you start to understand why they were ready to kill for Ruben like at the drop of a hat. Which is then juxtaposed against Linus's arc, which we already talked about meeting his parents and such. This is the movie where Linus comes into his own and becomes a full-fledged member of the team. Everything he says that he's going to do in this movie, he does. In the first movie, he does fuck something up. And yeah, he comes back like he's got the batteries and he and, you know, uh, Clooney's embarrassed. But, you know, he calls him out on it. But yeah, he fucks up a little. But then he he redeems himself here. Everything he sets out and says at the beginning, he he says he's going to do. And he pulls it all off. And he's the member of the team that always comes through. And by the end, he's gained that confidence that he's lacked this whole time. And he's gained the respect of his dad, who's invited him finally on a grift uh, at the end of the movie. And then he just in that scene in the airport says, well, I'll see you when I see you. And he walks off and they're just both kind of stunned. And they're like, see you when I see you. Yeah. <laughs> and they realize our little boy's grown up. Yeah. He's, he's gone for the nest. He's, he's a big boy now. And it's such a great moment. And it's a perfect ending to the series because you realize this series is really ultimately at the end, all about the growth of Linus. It really is. Like, and, and that might be why at the, in that moment they start ribbing each other again. And it's, it's funny because it's meta ribbing because Brad Pitt says to George Clooney, uh, next time, try to keep the weight off between jobs, which was a reference to the fact that he gained a bunch of weight for Syriana. Yeah. And then George Clooney says, why don't you settle down and have a bunch of kids, which is his relationship with Angelina Jolie. So it's like they start like meta ribbing each other, which is so great. And I didn't even talk about my favorite piece or my second favorite piece of language in this movie as far as the grifter code or the grifter lexicon. You mean it, the nose plays? No, it's because uh, the nose plays. The nose plays, Cargill. I absolutely believe that the nose plays. It's not just a prop for prop's sake. When Brad Pitt is dressed as a seismologist and he's in Banks' office trying to convince <laughs> him to put that seismograph in there, and Linus says to Ruben, he's doing an Irwin Allen, I fucking lost my shit. I was so happy. Irwin Allen, uh, for those of you who don't know, was a producer, a director, who made the greatest disaster movies of the 70s. Uh, and into the early 80s. So Linus is just referring to the fact that he specifically made a movie called Earthquake. Earthquake. Uh, but he also made, you know, things like The Beside Adventure, Didn't The Towering Inferno. Inferno? Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's. So he's just merged Earthquake. Yeah. So it's, it just, it like that made my little geek boy heart so happy. Like, and I, I, I think we might have stumbled upon something. I think maybe the language in Ocean's Eleven was gibberish. I think you're no, no, right. No, they've talked about it previously. I've seen, you know, I've seen them talk about how it was just kind of gibberish. They were just kind of making it up. But as the series evolved, they realized that people were trying to figure out what it meant. And they thought they realized there was this whole unmind. Like that's one of the creative flaws of Ocean's Eleven. I think it's I think it's a nearly perfect film. Uh, you know, it is as, you know, as perfect as Hollywood filmmaking gets. Um, but there was a choice that it could have even been, as Marvel says, it could have been plussed. And the way they could have plussed it is what if every single one of those lines was actually an in-joke that could be dissected the way the Erwin Allen joke plays, the way the Brody joke plays, like the Gilroy, like all of these are uh, are references to things. Some of them really tight in jokes, like some of them you have to hear what it's about, but others like the Irwin Allen, if you know your film history, that joke, like the nose, plays. plays. Absolutely. Um, so it's, 
and and of course I did I had never caught the Godfather references. I love the Godfather, but it's not one of those films I revisit. And so the I you're absolutely right when you started mentioning that I'm like, "Oh fuck, that's exactly what they're Yes, holy shit. How have I missed through it's, all these viewings it's all crazy. these Godfather jokes?" Well, it's crazy because they work them into conversations very naturally. Yeah. To where unless you're obsessed with a movie like I like I am definitely obsessed with The Godfather. So, I remember seeing this movie in theaters and like being the one guy in the row that was like, "Oh, like when George Clooney was like, what I want, what's most important to me. I'm like, oh, he said that to Al Pacino. That's it. Nobody cares. Sorry. All right. Fine. Whatever. But it, it would definitely made a difference to me. And I was so excited to see it. Uh, by the way, one thing about Ellen Barkin in this movie, who is fucking phenomenal as sort of Banks number two and as a woman who is so strong and so domineering, but at the same time, like her whole world revolves around making Bank happy. It's like this weird kind of dichotomy where it's like she is a ball buster, but at the same time, like when she gets that phone, there's that great moment where she finally gets the gold phone that he wanted. And the woman that gives her the package, she's just like, Oh my God, thank you. And it's like this weird, like, and it's just a woman who works at the hotel, but she's so elated that that is going to make bank happy that like the veneer kind of, but it's along. not just a woman who works at the hotel. It's right. It's someone in on the, on no, the no, job. No. But what I mean is it's not like someone famous that she's like enamored of, but she, that's how she acts in that moment because she's just so elated that she's going to get to make bank happy, which is like her, her kind of reason for being. So it's this, this weird kind of back and forth that she's doing that she does so well. And by the way, I just learned this. Apparently, Abigail Sponder shot a cameo for Ocean's 12. Like they were going to introduce the character in 12 and it got cut. So they were really were intending to build a universe out of these movies, like yeah. to really craft a through line. And I think that's really interesting. Speaking of through lines, um, Denny Shields, a character you didn't know was a big deal, comes back in this movie. The guy who was on Lamarck's boat and is the one that was bragging about Danny and oh, yeah. the whole reason that like Tulor started up that that whole feud with them comes back in this movie. And it's just it's crazy how many little pieces that you wouldn't necessarily think are important become very important to building the universe of these movies. And I love that, you know. Denny Shields is there, so obviously you know what's going to happen. And sure enough, there's Vincent Cassell following them all around the casino, and you're just waiting through this whole movie to see what elaborate scheme he's going to employ to take something away from them or to interrupt their heist. And then when you get to the end of the movie, and he just pulls a gun on Matt Damon, Matt Damon's disappointment in him... It's like, really? A, a gun? gun? It's like, we just watched you dance through a fucking laser grid in the last movie... Like, you, uh, Adolfo Shabadooed your way through a fucking laser grid, and now you're just pulling a gun on me? And you could just, that is, like, it stings him more than losing the diamonds. It's just like, really? That's all you had to do? And then, of course, because these guys are always one step ahead of everybody, turns out the diamonds are fake because they knew Tulur was there the whole time. God, I love these movies. Well, but the thing is, you know, that... They did know Tulur was there the whole time, but what's really funny is they tell us that those are fake diamonds. Yeah. And Tulur just assumes they've already pulled the switch. Yes. And and it's like, give them the diamonds. Okay. 
<laughs> his reaction, by the way, when Tulur sees the real diamonds fly away on the helicopter, and he just it takes him about ten seconds to work it all out as he's walking. By the way, he robs him at gunpoint on the top of a helipad and then base jumps off the fucking hotel. Because he's Tulur. Because he's Tulur and he's insane. And then as he's walking away on the street and he sees the diamonds flying away, you see that moment where he's like, Okay, why did Oh, come on. And he takes the diamonds out, takes one look at them, and starts cursing in French and throws them in a dumpster. It's just like, oh, it's such a perfect moment. Yeah. Like, if you if you are in on it, if you know the codes, you you could tell in a second that you've been had. And that's exactly what happens in that moment. Uh, there's also, I, I really enjoy, there's a really small uh, part played by Don McManus. Yes. Uh, as the pit boss. The only person in any Ocean's, well, no. There are two people in this movie I've gotten the chance to interview. One was Don McManus, the other was Eddie Izzard. Yeah. But like there's like the only people in this entire franchise I've ever been able to interview. Um yeah, but the what I find interesting about McManus is it's really the first time in this series that we see how someone gets real leverage over someone. Yeah. Like Every other character that he gets involved, he already has a relationship with. Like Danny's talking to the guy, he's like, "Yeah, I'm deep, like thirty thousand in debt, so it may as well be a hundred thousand." Like, well, it's right, called hundred thousand. Yeah. It's like he already thanks Danny. He already had a relationship, but with this, we actually see how he he's like, "Oh yeah, this guy's a shit heel, but we can use him." Yeah, and and so the way they get him, just so that, that he can drop some some balls later in the the movie and so it's it's really like when we finally see these someone's going to approach you all right and then we see the approach and it's like all right here they okay i love that you're not speaking euphemistically when you say that he just drops balls in this movie yeah that's literally his job it's a don mcmanus ball drop um (laughs) which is not uh one of the the thieves lexicon that's that's not a, a code for anything that that Rusty says to Danny. It's it's not a Don McManus ball drop. It's an Ella Fitzgerald. By the way, we didn't even mention this. The opening shot of this movie is so fucking fantastic because we see Rusty like breaking into a toy store. And I remember I watched this with my wife and she's like, he's robbing toy stores now? That seems like a step down. And then he goes through the next wall and it's like, oh no, there's a giant fucking vault right there. And he pulls out what looks like uh, wax paper but it's digital and he starts to be able to look through the wall because again these movies are science, science fiction, fiction films. absolutely like every single one of these films involves technology that really has never existed and probably never will and then all of a sudden he gets that call and he's like all right i gotta go in the middle of this job and all the other guys that are with him are looking around like did he just fucking leave like what do we do like it's such a great to to instantly let you know that something huge is going on that rusty would just walk away from a job like this just like nope i gotta go so immediately the audience is like something big went down something is happening something huge went down and it's just such a great small thing to tell so much in a story like i really thought that was great sound like guitar sound guitar you're a midget in 34 states an animal in the other 34 24 22 by the way speaking of little moments the letters that the guys are writing to Ruben so that Linus will read them to him while he's uh, in a catatonic state is such a weird and wonderful little quirk. Like, I, I love... It was not just the guys, it's actually Basher. Is it just Basher? I thought they were all writing no, letters. No, it's, just, it's, just, it's Basher? just Basher. Basher's writing them, and then there's that great moment at the end where Ruben's like, by the way, the letters. and They really just, brought me back. They really brought me back, and, and you know, just that that write that feeling right there um 
Also, another great Ruben moment is Ruben finally gets up and he goes and opens his drawer and there's that terrible shirt and he just oh, smiles. Man. That crushed velvet, like yeah. oh it's and it's 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 like, ah yes, I'm back. Well, we haven't really talked about that. Ruben at the beginning of this movie is very different from Ruben in Oceans Eleven and Ruben in Oceans Twelve. He's wearing like track suits, he's drinking wheatgrass, he's like he's try because he's trying to be young. Exactly. And exactly. he's, you know, he's, he's like, no, I'm, uh, you know, he's not listening to Danny and, and, and Rusty. He's on his own, you know, he's going off to, to do this foolish thing to prove himself when the whole point is he doesn't have to prove himself. Exactly. He's fucking Ruben and Ruben's fucking been around. Ruben fucking shook Sinatra's hand. Like that is, you don't, you don't need to be young. You don't need to have energy, especially when you have friends and you have respect and you are yes. part of something. And that's what that, this whole movie really is, is he then sees how much that long life has brought him and it has brought him a series of friends who will risk everything for him just to fucking spite the guy who fucked with their friend exactly. and that that is much more valuable than the respect of being the hot guy on the, uh, uh, the new co uh, hot cock on the block. And it's such a great revelatory, subtle moment for Ruben. And, uh, I absolutely love how that all plays out. Like, that's the thing about this movie is it's so sweet. These three movies, like as much as, as 12 has its flaws, I still really like whole swaths of it. Um, uh, watching them together back to back in one sitting is so fucking enjoyable and so rewarding. There's a lot of very subtle jokes that you just can't catch unless you watch them that close together. Uh, and you really see the movement of the characters and the evolution of them. And it's really great. This movie makes sure everybody gets something to do and something good to do. And everybody ultimately by the end of the series has been part of the con and has played something else. Yes. And um, and everybody, like, even here, there's a small little part where they, you know, um, where something goes wrong, but it's also part of the plan, but there was an unplanned thing that they have to deal with. But also, not everybody is in on everything that's going on in all of these elements. They're keeping things from each other. And, oh, the part we haven't talked about oh, yet. Oh, we need to talk about. I know exactly what we're going to talk Viva about. Viva Mexico. Now. Viva fucking Mexico. Viva la revolucion. Because it turns out the other thing the Malloys are there to do is make things difficult for people. Uh, there's a great sequence in this where uh, Casey Affleck is sent down to the factory in Mexico that makes the dice for the casino because everything is controlled so much by the time that they're made that you can't slip anything into them. It has to be done at the factory. So he's basically sent to infiltrate the factory and pour this this lead compound, or I'm not sure what it is because I don't know science fiction of uh, these heist movies. Uh, to it's pour not metallic. Okay, yes, because that would that would show up on their scans or whatever. But to pour the solution into the the uh, material they make the dice out of so that they can be affected, affected by uh, the light. Because science fiction. Because science fiction. And wouldn't you know it, when he gets there... He finds the conditions of the factory so deplorable, he decides that instead of just doing his job, he's going to lead a revolution. 
and then they the they go on strike and are revolting against the owners and so they then have to send his brother down to to clean up to fix it only his brother joins when he finds out what the the conditions are that, and so then they get to this brilliant moment where they're like well you know they they want higher wages and they want so so and so they're like well what are we talking about here and it's like thirty six thousand dollars well thirty six thousand dollars times two hundred people and they rattle off the number and it's like no 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 thirty six thousand dollars total and they're like wait these guys are doing this for three fifty a week <laughs> yes can, can somebody I write, them write them a check <laughs> like all of a sudden they're like holy shit no wonder this is happening well it's such a great editing moment too where it's like you know we see the scene where they're like you're gonna have to go down there straighten this out and then like three scenes later they get a call to like. Okay, so did you fix it? And they just smash cut we're to Scott to, Con. We're, we got, we're about to break. We got to break management. He's lighting a Molotov cocktail. It's like Jesus Christ, you guys! You had one job to do. Come the fuck on! But then everybody kind of comes around, like, oh, like it's the first thing that clues Casey have like in on this is like, are they going to kick on air conditioning? And everybody thinks that's funny. Yeah. They're like, this is Mexico, bro. And he's in that bar and he's like, have we forgotten the immortal words of General Zapata? It's better to die on your feet than to live on your knees. And it's like, who are you? What are you doing? It's one of the things I do love about the series. Again, as much as the Malloy brothers are kind of fucking idiots with each other, <laughs> they're both still really talented. They're yeah. not complete morons. There's a reason why they're on the team. They're not just comic relief. Like, I love that great moment where, you know, Scott Conn's like, hey, guys, come on, pitch in. And they're like, wait, you want us to pay? And it's like, guys, we all, we pull tips. They're going to think I'm kiting. Yeah, they're going to think I'm kiting. You know, it's uh, it's all of a sudden, like, they've got to pitch in money to keep the con up because, uh, you know, uh, he's playing the part of a of a waiter there so that he can deliver this one one bit. Like, it's really, it's, it's really interestingly done. But yeah, they all, the Malloys are not complete morons. They're really good at what they do. And I think that it's expertly executed, and especially with this, because this is the first time in the series that we're allowed to really side and love the Malloys for what they're doing, because what they're doing isn't about the con. It's about these people, and damn it, these people deserve 350 more a week. This is true. And the air conditioning turned on when they're fucking working. Like, <laughs> these are human fucking beings, asshole. Like, it's great. So, it is so good. And it's dealt with in such a great way where it's so human, and, uh, and, and I I love the way that's acting. There's a lot of little human moments. There's a great bit where they time it so that when they're walking past a guard post, Clooney calls him and pretends to be the principal at his son's school. And the guy comes running out of the booth. Buddy, buddy, buddy. Hey, hold my seat for me. The kid beat the lunch lady again. Oh, man, I got to. No, 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 please. Just It's like literally they're getting people to beg them to infiltrate. Like, it's incredible. But just that guy's the way that guy delivers that line of like, hey, 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 I got to go. My kid bit the lunch lady again. And I love how they set that up earlier because they're like, yeah, the guard uh, find a problem with the guards. Like, oh, yeah, his kid's a real riddle and chewer. Yeah. <laughs> Which, so good. Which in the future they'll refer to as a Salisbury. Yes. Which thank you so much. I, I'm looking into my future so much in these episodes, and I am not liking what I'm seeing. <laughs> but also, by the way, we talked about the fact that uh, we have one member of the Avengers in this pretty much this franchise. Yes. Um, we need to talk about War our war machine, baby. Our, okay. We need to talk about our favorite scene from that Avenger in this movie during the cartwheel. Oh yes. Where he needs to distract bank long enough for them to for the Malloys to go in and, and convert all the pictures if Ruben was a scene chewer throughout Ocean's 11 this is going to 11 oh yes holy shit in 
It, how, it's a smoothie composed entirely Don, of chunks of scenery. Don Cheadle, yeah, makes a scenery smoothie and, and manages to chew on that. Oh my God, is he amazing in that suit? He's and also that's a small little amazing sub reference because there's this great small moment in Ocean's Eleven where um, where they're sitting in the van and Linus is being bored to tears with the Malloy brothers and he's like they're playing 20 questions I've got it they argue argue all right are uh are you a person yes are you alive yes you're evil Knievel damn, damn it, it. <laughs> so then they put an evil Knievel and not you know analog into this fucking movie named and- Fender Rhodes Fender Rhodes Rhodey is in this fucking movie Rhodey too. is in the movie Mr. Bank do you know what Chuck Berry said every night before counting one two three four what did he say? Pay me my money. <laughs> this is heavy bike. Fender Rhodes is a... I'm a goddamn American icon. <laughs> Everything he says in that scene is hilarious, but what is more hilarious to me than anything he says is the fact that Basher has a book called Speaking with Distinction, which he had just happened to have been reading, which means you have an American actor playing a British character, then pretending to be an American. Like you're gonna disappear into that mirror, like that. That's a scene out of The Last Jedi. Like you're gonna disappear into that fucking reflection. Like that is crazy hilarious to me that he has to pretend that he's a British person pretending to be American, and he is actually American. And it's fucking hilarious. It is so good. I I love everything about this movie. In fact, my brother and I have a running reference with each other because Al Pacino is great in this movie, and he has a couple of line deliveries that are so quirky and weird and awesome and there's one where danny ocean he's danny has convinced denny to convince all of the uh the high rollers to leave at a certain point just to piss uh bank off and bank makes a deal with danny he's like if you keep him here i'll give you 30 percent of their winnings and danny says they're gonna need villas and al pacino responds villas okay and then walk it's the weirdest way of like next to Denzel Washington, it's the most notable way I've ever heard someone say the word okay. And my brother okay. and I, my brother and I every once in a while, like if I'm like, uh hey Blake, uh, we're gonna we're gonna meet around three. Three o'clock. Okay. <laughs> Just like we'll do it the exact same way, and we both instantly know what we're talking about because when you hear him say it, it sounds like such a weird little thing that I'm I'm harping on, but watch this movie again and just pay attention to the way he says it. And it's bizarre. It is deliberately being done to set up getting them kicked out of the villa so that he needs a place to go to score with Ellen Barkin, Using- who is a cougar, by the way. Oh, yeah. I-, I didn't invent the term. I read about it in Maxim. Um, <laughs> I'm very familiar also, with this term. Also, that's the moment that dates this movie. Like, as much as the cell phone line she dates that. She would have been a MILF, not a cougar. Well, cougar was the new thing, and cougar was a term that not everybody really knew in the aughts. It's ah. now a very it's a it's a it's sewn in like milf. It's an urban dictionary. Like for a long time, milf was just a porn term, and that saying milf got chuckles from dudes because it's like you're talking about porn. Um, and now milf is just a common parlance slang. Yeah. As cougar is uh, fucking Kevin S. Beagle, you know, uh, 
producer who came up with you know on a, with me on ain't it cool news uh had a whole show cougar town cougarton that was a big hit so i mean it's it is sewn into the fabric but here they're kind of explaining the term uh in this movie they won't explain gilroy they won't explain Irwin allen or billy martin but they'll explain cougar that's she's a bit of a cougar i read about it in maxim like the explaining what cougar is and mentioning that you read about it in maxim <laughs> Clearly, this was made in 2007 because it could not have been made in this decade. I didn't even think about that. Like, what's Maxim? What's that? Grandpa, what's Maxim? Read about it in, not on, in, because it's an actual physical magazine that you would read. That is fucking That is not the internet. Oh, my God. I love that so much. And that scene where Ellen Barkin is just falling under the spell of that chemical... Uh, it's just like you just watch her kind of devolve. She into, is having so much oh fun in my, that scene. She's chewing fucking scenery at that point. Like it's, but yeah, this this movie just has nothing but fun throughout its entirety. Like it just, it just wants to entertain again, and that's like I think that's where they they really kind of that's the misstep of two uh, of twelve is is they got a little more serious with it. They they tried to up the stakes, and really this is. They should have remembered, look, this just needs to be fun from beginning to end. It needs, the audience wants yes. to have a good time. Yes, and that's exactly what Soderbergh said about about the first one, is he wanted something that audiences could enjoy from start to finish. And I think the big, and we, we talked about this already, but I think the biggest problem with 12 is that it forgets how much fun there is in the actual heist. The actual heist is supposed to be, and in this movie, more than any of the other ones, it is a fucking celebratory moment when that heist is going off, when they really start getting things rolling and people are winning money. Like, it's the only one of the three movies that when they're succeeding, you want to pump your fist. You're like, God damn, that's awesome. Because of what it means. Because of, because like you said, they've blended the two. Now it's, there are stakes, but it's still a heist. It's still a Vegas heist, but this time it has a little more of a heavy weight to it. And because of that, when they start succeeding and you start seeing all the numbers popping up over people's heads of Which how much they're really winning. Which is a really inventive little moment of how yeah. to do that. Like, that's a very brilliant, simple fix that at the time was not something that was well done. Like, it's it's so weird. I was thinking about this the other night because me and my wife started re-watching the Sherlock series. Um, and, uh, uh, and it was such a weird thing in the first episode of Sherlock to see a text message pop over someone's head in mm-hmm. a TV show. Right. Like now it, now that it, that taboo has been broken. Now it's a very common thing. Like we all understand what looking at a phone is. So you don't have to actually look at the phone. You can actually do it in a text bubble and audiences will accept that. But so for them to do this in the movie and the way they did it and the way they made it look was really a great turn and a great use of an effect to tell a story. And it's such a simple thing to overlook, but it really is a genius solve to show exactly how successful the moment is. Agreed, 1,000%. And that's this is such a great send-off to this trilogy. It's it's so perfect. It brings us back to form, but it doesn't ignore... It, it's, it's an acknowledgement that they took some chances in 12. It's not an acknowledgement that 12 was a failure. That's not what he's saying at all. It's an acknowledgement that it was a it was out there but at the same time 12 is so integral to understanding some of the twists that happen at the end of this movie that you cannot 
discard it. Yeah, you can't skip it because then you're going to miss, you know, what Rusty's talking about. You're going to miss some of the character development because the characters do develop in 12. You're going to miss Tallur. Uh, so that's just not going to make any fucking sense yeah. at all and not going to be as satisfying because that's such a satisfying ending. Watching Tallur get fucked again. Yeah. Watching because the thing is, is Tallur has grabbed another fake. Like yes. Tallur has successfully robbed <laughs> these guys again. And it's fake again. He's really good at stealing shit that's not valuable. Yes. <laughs> And and so there's so much satisfying, you know, the the whole thing of the solve, you know, them getting things good with Andy Garcia. Yeah. Um, you know, all oh, of that pays the off. Best line in the whole movie is when they come in. He comes in and he goes, "Your share of this heist has been donated to this charity." And he's like, "That wasn't part of the deal." And he's like, "Well, if you want, just give him a call. You can uh, pull all 200 kids out of camp." Um, and then he starts to leave, and Terry's like, "Do you?" Do you think this is funny, don't you? And he goes, well, Terry is sure as shit ain't sad. <laughs> Fucking just bam, and, and, and slows, clams, slows, uh, slams is, the door. And it is one of the most alpha moments that Danny gives. Danny is clearly the alpha of the entire series, but it's one of the few times in the entire series where he brings out that cold, just callous, uh, uh, rarely seen George Clooney. Mm -hmm. uh, that's just like, Man, when this guy wants to slam his dick down on the table, does he make a loud fucking thud? Sure and, shit yeah, ain't sad. Sure as shit ain't sad. Oh, I love it. This is, this is, this, this, this is a Fender Rhodes moment. And that brings us to the junk food pairing. And this time it's going to be uh, some great fried dumplings and a bottle of Heineken. This movie, uh, Rusty is mostly drinking throughout the movie. Yeah, in fact, something we did not mention one of the things I noticed on this rewatch, Brad Pitt is having so much fun just being in the scenes. Like if whenever he's not speaking, if you look at him, he's got this goofy expression on his face because he's just having the best time. Yeah. Like he's just happy to be in this room again. And it's I don't know how much of it is a character choice or how much of it is literally just Brad Pitt's like, fuck, this is a lot of fun. Yeah. Um or fuck what George just said to me right before they yelled action is making me crack up. But yeah, he's drinking instead of eating in this one. But um, the two times he is enjoying what I would call junk food that lives up to our core values is one scene he's eating a delicious looking uh, pot sticker and drinking a Heineken. So to me, that's just the perfect way to send yourself off of this this marathon, which I do recommend you watch all three of these movies back to back to back. It, so. is, it is the way to watch them because it really does. It is a truly satisfying trilogy, even if you don't like the second. It's a lot like, you know what the best and oddly enough, it, it might be maybe it's the curse of the Cheadle. <laughs> because it's a lot like uh, uh, 12 is a lot like Iron Man 2. You know, uh, Iron Man 2 is a movie that a lot of people like to rank as one of the worst Marvel films. But when you watch it in order with the movies, it does so much heavy lifting, setting up what's going to come. You can't really watch it without it. And there's so much to enjoy in that movie on its own that you can't discount it, that it just it just has so much going on that you enjoy and that it's like, yeah, okay, look, on its own, independently, I see why people walked out of a single viewing of that yeah. and felt that way. But I remember when I watched Iron Man 2 a second time, it was at an Avengers marathon that was leading up to Iron Man 3. So it was literally, it was 
Iron Man, Iron Man 2, Avengers, Iron Man 3, and watched in that order, it is a, that is a great fucking, it's like, oh, yeah, it's like a weak second act that pays off with a great third act. Like, okay, I can forgive that. And and it does so much that you can't just like, yeah, you don't need to watch that. It's not like some of the Friday the 13th movies where you're like, yeah, you can skip eight altogether. You don't need that. Eight and nine, fuck that. Just jump right into X. Um, no, you need 12. And, uh, uh, and 12 does really deliver on making 13 awesome. Yeah, 100%. Guys, thank you so much for joining us for our exploration of the Ocean movies, both here in the main episodes and the Ocean's 12 episode for patrons. Hey, if you'd like to become a patron, patreon.com slash junkfoodcinema. If you'd like to hear more about 12, which we keep saying, hey, we talked about this, uh, that's where you heard it. (laughs) You can also follow us on Twitter at junkfoodcinema and like the podcast on Facebook, facebook.com slash junkfoodcinema. Cargill, where can people find you on the interwebs? You can find me on Instagram and on Twitter at Massaworm, M-A-S-S-A-W-Y-R-M. And just as a reminder, we are going to be at Denver Comic Con June 15th through the 17th. We're also going to be at Convergence in Minneapolis July the 5th through the 8th. So if you are attending either one of those events, Come up to us, drink beers with us, talk movies with us. That's what we like to do. You can find me on Twitter at Guy Salisbury or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Brian Salisbury Critic. And next week, we are for the, I can't believe for the first time, I cannot believe it is season five before we are talking about any of the Fast and the Furious movies. But we're, of course, starting with the one that's the most important. Fast Five. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's because every time I've mentioned Fast and the Furious movies, you're like, we have to do a whole episode. I want to do the whole franchise, the entire. You do want to do the whole franchise, and there's certain parts of the franchise that I would rather skip. Sure. Sure. And I get that, and I understand that. But yes, next week, Fast Five, we're continuing our heist month, and I'm super excited about that. But until then, I want to just remind everyone. The nose plays. The nose does play. The nose plays. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Priceline.